Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Wednesday the 9th of December. Today, a tax on financial transactions is planned as Alistair Darling prepares to get tough with the bankers in his pre-budget report. This is a sector um, which has done extremely well over the last decade or more, but hasn't really paid its due, hasn't really put enough back into society. Also today, optimism from the most senior NATO general in Afghanistan. It's an armed camp, it's a city under siege, a city that one MP described to me as a bit of a tinderbox. The British Museum is considering a request from Egypt to return the Rosetta Stone. He's a big, tall, powerful man with a big voice who usually wears an Indiana Jones-style hat, which adds on about another eight inches, and he absolutely fears no man. How schools are using dirty tricks to attract the best pupils. The research shows there are sort of dead zones, they call them, um, neighbourhoods where parents, however hard they try, um, are unlikely to get a place for their children at the most popular schools. And the first town to be twinned with Disney World in Florida is Swindon. But first, Bill Overton's here with the news headlines. In his pre-budget report to Parliament today, the Chancellor is expected to announce a tax on bankers' bonuses. He'll have to admit that public borrowing has gone even higher than previously forecast, probably to as much as £190 billion. The Guardian's been told the Prime Minister will also make proposals today to tax the city even more. Gordon Brown wants to bring in a tax on all financial transactions, known as the Tobin tax, and to make a levy on the city to set up an insurance scheme to pay for any other banking crisis. The Irish Republic's also announcing its budget today said to be one of the most severe in history with serious government cuts in social welfare and pay cuts for civil servants abroad now and the top u.s commander in afghanistan stanley mccrystal has told congress al-qaeda will not be defeated until osama bin laden's either captured or killed but he also said the new surge of troops meant success was possible meanwhile the u.n says one major conflict's been dealt with the secretary general's told the security council congo in africa is now largely at peace after 10 years of civil war. He says the United Nations can now concentrate on reconstruction and begin to withdraw its troops. Football and Manchester United got through to the knockout stage of the Champions League with a 3-0 win over Wolfsburg. This in spite of more than 10 first-team players being injured. And very much thanks to Michael Owen who scored a hat-trick. Chelsea had to accept a two-all draw with Nicosia but they're already through to the next stage. 29-year-old Owen gets the overall approval of the morning sports pages. Owen's back, shouts the mail. Owen hat-trick drives United to the top is our headline. Owen, hungry like a wolf, is the Express's version. All the writers agree it gives him another chance for World Cup selection. Did you see me, Fabio? asks the son. The economy dominates the front pages. Our headline about the PM's next tax on the city is headlined Labour's new front in battle with the city. The Independent warns, however, of the exodus of the bankers, led by the president of Barclays. But then they start to contradict one another. The Telegraph forecasts Darling aims to spend his way out of crisis, but the Financial Times says Darling to slash spending by 14%. The Times argues that international concern over public finances means the markets tell the Chancellor time to end the spending. And finally, the tabloids are still pursuing Tiger Woods with the story about his mother-in-law being taken to hospital while staying with the family in Florida. The Sun sums it up. He ain't out of the woods yet. There's more news and sport all day at guardian.co.uk. 
The government is to increase the international pressure for a tax on financial transactions, a so-called Tobin tax. Preparations are being made today, even as the Chancellor Alistair Darling sets out the government's spending priorities for the last six months before the election. Heather Stewart is the Observer's economics editor. They're going to publish a paper tomorrow, um, a sort of 60-page sort of chunky document from the Treasury, which will lay out um, the various arguments for um, several different measures, but one of those being a tax on financial transactions, um, really a tax on everything the city does from day to day. Um, and this is part of um, Gordon Brown's efforts to, to make clear this is a subject he's, he's not going to let drop. This is something he, he talked about at, at the G20 uh, Finance Minister's Summit in St Andrews uh, in November, but it's, it's very much something he's going to keep pushing on the world stage, and this is another step towards that. To be honest, you know, he can bang on about it till the cows come home but I mean without um, other countries going along with it uh, it's just not going to happen is it? Well, number 10 is very clear that this is something you would need to get agreement for from all the other uh, world's large financial centres. But there is quite a lot of movement on that. Um, the French uh, finance minister wrote an editorial in Le Monde earlier this week talking about the arguments for a transaction tax and what you could spend the money on. Nancy Pelosi, uh, the Democrat leader in the States, has has thrown her weight behind this too. And so there is some movement, I think. This this was an, uh, an issue that was thought moribund for a very long time. But, but you know, after the financial crisis people are really starting to think differently about the whole finance sector and and this seems to be something that's got a little bit of momentum behind it now well today of course uh, alistair darling sets out his pre-budget report um there's gonna be no uh, tax on financial transactions there but what do you think we will see well, he's going to um, give us the most convincing case he possibly can as to how he thinks he can get the public finances back under control as soon as possible, but without uh, clobbering the, the, the very fragile economic recovery that we've got. So he'll talk about halving the public deficit over the next four years, which he's, he's going to do um, through some, some pretty tight spending plans. Um, and he'll also um, talk a lot about um, the ways in which he thinks Labour has helped to drag the economy out of recession over the past um, year or so. He thinks his fiscal stimulus package that he did last year, the VAT cut and so on, which cost about £20 billion altogether, has, has been absolutely crucial in, in preventing the recession from being even longer and even deeper than, than it in fact has. And the other thing he's almost certainly going to do is a, a one-off windfall tax on, on Citibankers' bonuses. It's going to be pretty uncomfortable for him though, isn't it? Presenting a pre-budget report with the nation's finances so far in the red. It's extremely difficult because he's under immense pressure from the city uh, and also from the Conservatives to show that he's really determined to do something about this this huge deficit that we've got, 175, probably slightly more than that, 180 billion pounds this year, he's expected to say. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, the, the economy still hasn't officially emerged from recession. And there is a genuine fear um, in Downing Street, I think, that if you do too much too soon on the deficit, you know, you you you. you clobber that recovery and you, you, you choke it off before it's even begun. So it, it really is a very, very difficult balancing act he's got to strike, I think. Heather Stewart, and there's full coverage of Alistair Darling's pre-budget report and the reaction to it at guardian.co.uk slash business. Tomorrow, instead of the regular Guardian Daily podcast, you can listen to a special programme focusing on the pre-budget report, which we're producing with the Guardian's weekly business podcast team. On the Guardian's website today... Hello, I'm Will Woodward, Head of Politics at The Guardian. Today online at guardian.co.uk slash politics, we'll have up-to-minute coverage of the PBR, including Andrew Sparrow's live blog, 
tweets from Michael White. Uh, we'll have an analysis piece from Mike later on and also from the Observer's political editor, Toby Helm. And then in tomorrow's paper, Patrick Winter, the Guardian's political editor, will lead the analysis we do of how the PBR has played at Westminster and how it's likely to play in the polls. Has Gordon Brown created meaningful dividing lines with the Conservatives or will this be another government initiative that falls flat? All that and more at guardian.co.uk slash politics. From guardian.co.uk, this is Guardian Daily. The Rosetta Stone, a key to understanding hieroglyphic writing and one of the greatest treasures in the British Museum, may be loaned to Egypt. The Guardian's Maeve Kennedy says the museum's trustees are meeting in the new year to discuss such a move. That should be temporary underlined and loan underlined twice. The loan has been requested by a very fiery character called Zahi Hawass, who is head of the Antiquities Service in Egypt, and I should think one of the most powerful and feared Egyptologists in the world. Uh, As many foreign archaeologists have found out, you fall out with him at your peril. So the British Museum is going to consider the loan. The application is now two years old, but it has come to a rolling boil because Hawass is in London this week to launch an extraordinary book, kind of autobiographical tome. It's, it's worth a, almost as much as the Rosetta Stone. It, it certainly is. Um, they haven't, funnily enough, sent me a press copy. It costs £2,600. He's doing a book signing in Harrods on Thursday, and I think that's the one place you might expect to sell a few copies. But anyway, he's here to sign these books and um, and to remind the British Museum that he very much wants the Rosetta Stone back for the new museum, which is supposed to be opening beside the pyramids of Giza in 2012. But the whole question of agreeing multinational loans takes years and years and years. So it's not at all too soon to jog their memory. And the Rosetta Stone isn't the only uh, antiquity from ancient Egypt that Hawass is trying to get returned to Egypt. Certainly not. And that's where it gets complicated because he has a hit list of things that he would like to borrow, including the Nefertiti head from the Berlin Museum, which is probably one of the most beautiful and famous pieces of ancient sculpture in the world, but very fragile because that's made of a kind of plaster covering stone. And the Berlin Museum says it could never travel. Not an answer that Hawass is ever likely to accept as final. But then there are other things in other museums that he regards as stolen and he would like those back permanently. And given that the history of the Rosetta Stone is itself slightly odd because it was discovered in the 19th in the late 18th century in Egypt by a French military party, a young French officer who very brilliantly spotted the inscription in a stone that was part of the foundations of a temple that they were restoring. Um, and it was then captured by the English when Napoleon's army was defeated, and that's how it came back to England. So given this slightly odd history, even more tangled history, you might think, than the Elgin Parthenon marbles, there is considerable anxiety about what would happen if it did actually go to Egypt. Maeve Kennedy. I'm John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, we hear from the mayor of the first town in the world to be twinned with Disney World. We have a fantastic um, museum called STEAM. It's, it's passe, but it is quite, quite magical when I go around, and I'm really pleased that we're now twin with the Magic Kingdom. But first, on a visit to Afghanistan, 
The US Defence Secretary Robert Gates said Washington was committed to winning the conflict with the Taliban, despite Barack Obama's announcement of a planned withdrawal. Yesterday, General Stanley McChrystal, America's top military commander in Afghanistan, gave evidence before the House and Senate Armed Services Committees. He expressed confidence in the NATO mission. Afghanistan is a challenge that is best approached with a balance of determination and humility. While U.S. forces have been at war in Afghanistan for eight years, the Afghans have been at it for more than 30. They are frustrated with international efforts that have failed to meet their expectations, confronting us with a crisis of confidence among Afghans who view the international effort as insufficient and their government as corrupt or, at the very least, inconsequential. The mission in Afghanistan is undeniably difficult, and success will require steadfast commitment and incur significant costs. I participated fully in the President's assessment and decision-making process and was afforded multiple opportunities to provide my recommendations and best military advice, which I did. I believe the decisions that came from that process reflect a realistic and effective approach. I fully support the President's decision. The President also reiterated how this decision supports our national interests. Rolling back the Taliban is a prerequisite to the ultimate defeat of al-Qaeda. We can and will accomplish this mission. But The Guardian's foreign affairs analyst, Simon Tisdall, has just returned from Afghanistan, and he paints a bleak picture of life there. Life is very tough for most Afghans, has been for many years, of course, 30 years of civil war, but um, I was surprised how edgy and apparently dangerous Kabul seemed. Um, it's an armed camp, it's a city under siege, there are men with large guns on every corner, every intersection and all the public buildings and embassies and hotels and so on are now hidden behind great big concrete barriers and uh, razor wire and it, it seemed very much like uh, a city that one MP described to me as a bit of a tinderbox. The mayor of Kabul has just been charged with corruption. I mean, how bad is the problem of corruption? Extremely serious. I talked to some people from an NGO who who are permanently engaged in trying to monitor corruption in public life in Afghanistan, where you know organizations like Transparency International say it's like one of the worst countries in the world. Um, and it is said to be so serious that it undermines confidence in the nation-building pro process that the NATO allies are engaged in. It undermines confidence in the elected government, especially since the, the controversy over the elections this autumn. And it... it it makes it more difficult to recruit Afghan army and Afghan police because no one's quite clear who, who they're fighting for. You got a chance to meet General Stanley McChrystal, the most senior US and NATO commander in Afghanistan. What were your impressions of him? Well, he's a very interesting man, I think, uh, very ascetic. Um, he's said to sleep only four or five hours every night, um, only drinks water, um, seems to have quite a fierce physical regimen for, for himself and uh, obviously expects total commitment from all his forces as well. He's got a, an enormously difficult job, of course, and he's only got a apparently short period of time in which to show results. What about the troop surge? Will that make much difference? Well, my personal impression is that it probably will in the sense that, although there are other factors involved, it did, did in Iraq in 2006, the policy is not just additional troops, but additional economic and infrastructure development and additional a political surge, as David Miliband, the British Foreign Secretary, has described it. And um, they've got about two years to try and bring down the levels of violence from where they were this year, which I think quite, is quite possible. 
um, especially if they are able to negotiate or do deals with or buy off some elements of the Taliban groups that, that are opposed to them, the so-called dollar-a-day or ten-dollar-a-day Taliban, as opposed to the ideologues who live in, who take their orders from Quetta. But it's increasingly becoming clear, really, that uh, America and the other NATO allies are seeing Pakistan as the bigger problem even than Afghanistan. Well, last year, as you know, Obama combined the two as a sort of AFPAC policy, and um, the more this goes on, the clearer it becomes that not only can Afghanistan not be sorted without the full help from Pakistan, but the converse is true, that if things don't go on in Afghanistan, they could go a lot worse in Pakistan. And we are seeing, at the moment, much more daily violence um, in Pakistan rather than in Afghanistan, certainly in terms of attacks on civilian targets. Guardian Daily. News and reports from around the world. Head teachers are breaking the rules on school admissions to get the brightest children. That's according to academics from the London School of Economics. Education correspondent Jessica Shepherd has seen the study. There's been a new admissions code in effect from February and it's basically meant to um, make school admissions fairer. But in fact, um, schools are flouting the code. One school, um, the head teacher was found to be courting um, parents to persuade them to reject offers from another school, which is, is nearly definitely flouting the code. Um, and another ranked children on its waiting list according to their own criteria rather than the official rules, which would put children um, with special needs, for example, first. Um, and another picked pupils according to how near they were, not to the school, but to a building that was half a mile from the school. So obviously uh, schools are sort of gazumping other schools so that they can get the best pupils. And what are the effects of this? You know, when schools break the rules, basically, in order to get uh, more talented kids... What, what happens? What's the effect of that? Well, it sort of widens the um, divide between schools. So you get some schools um, where there's a disproportionately high number of uh, children with special needs or um, children who are sort of the lower attainment um, and some where it's very high attainment indeed. It's sort of less of a comprehensive intake. And you get some areas where it's very difficult for people who live in that area to get their children into any decent school. Absolutely. These, the research shows there are sort of dead zones, they call them, um, neighbourhoods where parents, however hard they try, um, are unlikely to get a place for their children at the most popular schools. There's also been warnings that lawyers are going to have a field day over all this. Yeah, so parents, local authorities and schools are hiring more and more lawyers, so the process is getting more and more expensive for everyone, um, to deal with what is an increasingly complex area, school admissions. So, so um, when they don't get their kid into a school, then they get the lawyers that's, in? That's right. They're really trying to find sort of the legal intricacies um, of the code and where perhaps they can find a loophole. Jessica Shepherd. Swindon in Wiltshire is already twinned with Salzgitter in Germany, Ocotal in Nicaragua and Turun in Poland. Now it's going to get some new signs. It's become the first town in the world to be officially twinned with Disney World. The Florida theme park ran a competition and was persuaded to select Swindon after seeing a pitch from 20-year-old mortgage advisor Rebecca Warren. You'll never be able to compare the place where dreams come true, but we may find a few similarities, even if it's just one or two. A short Atlantic flight and down a few country lanes, you'll find my little town, which is famous for steam trains. An ever-expanding town with a friendly village feel, with the best pubs around for a traditional British meal. 
We may not have a castle or the hot Florida sun, but we do sure have what Disney has. It's fun for everyone. In Swindon we love our football, when the boys in red show off their skills. Our town is full of teen spirit, even in the winter chills. The closest you'll get to Animal Kingdom is our local zoo, but in this neck of the woods you'll sure see a farm animal or two. Hollywood Studios is definitely my favourite park. All the locals come here to catch a movie in the dark. The teacups are my favourite ride, I say this without a doubt. You twist and turn again and again, just like our famous magic roundabout. My wish was always to be Cinderella with a beautiful ball gown. But come on Disney, you will agree, Swindon is your twin town. The Mayor of Swindon is David Wren. I was gobsmacked because it didn't come through the normal twinning routes. Um, but I'm really pleased that Rebecca won this competition and it will be great for Swindon. And Swindon beats many other cities and towns around Britain, Blackpool, Aberdeen, Chester, Milton Keynes, Wigan. For people that haven't been to Swindon, what are its chief attractions? Um, well, we are a major, I mean, we are on the major tourist route already. We're really central within the southwest for all the major, for, for Bath and London and Bristol and, and Stonehenge, all those sort of places. Um, lovely countryside all around. We have a fantastic um, museum called STEAM, um, Outlet Villages. Um, we are the, the fastest growing town in the country. It's, it's passe, but it is quite magical when I go around, and I'm really pleased that we're now twin with the Magic Kingdom. And I know that Rebecca and some of her family are going to uh, Disney World early next year to unveil a plaque uh, saying that it's twinned with Swindon. I mean, and there's also going to be some kind of exhibit there uh, um, representing Swindon. Do you know what that's going to consist of? Well, I understand that they're going over and they will be uh, greeted by the mayor of the Magic Kingdom on uh, Main Street. Um, and the, as you say, there will be a plaque commemorating the first twinning with the Magic Kingdom. Um, a replica of that will then come back to Swindon and we'll have to find a, a suitable place for that. Um, they're also going to organise a party uh, in Swindon um, to commemorate the event. That's in January. Um, I'm not sure where they're going to hold that, but uh, it will have to be a very big venue. David Wren, Andy Duckworth and Tim Maybe with the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thank you for listening. Listener.